listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsluk, and today is Thursday, the 13th of January in Seoul, and I'm joined via Zoom by BBC journalist Rupert Wingfield-Hayes, who is based in Tokyo. Before we get started, three brief messages to all of you. First of all, please leave a message, uh, leave a review of this podcast, rather. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. And third, check out nknews.org backslash shop to look at our products. We've got some fabulous merchandise there, the NK leadership chart, art posters, and more. Uh, As always, if you have feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. And that's, in fact, how I got in touch with today's guest, who is in Tokyo, the Tokyo correspondent for the BBC. He's been with the BBC since 1999 and in Tokyo since 2012. It's Rupert Wingfield-Hayes. Welcome on the show, Rupert. Uh, Thanks for coming. Well, thanks very much for having me, Jacko. Oh, and I should direct all of our listeners, they can find you on Twitter at wingcommander1, wingcommander1. So I read your May 2018 article on the BBC website titled The King of Pyongyang, and I thought to uh, to set the scene for our discussion today, I'm going to read a little extract from that article, so bear with me. I should be halfway to Beijing. Instead, I'm sitting in a drab room at a Pyongyang hotel. On the far wall, portraits of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il stare down. Right now, their expressions appear particularly malevolent. I feel dazed, shell-shocked. Across the table, a slender man with a face lined by years of smoking is looking at me with an expression of calm menace. This can all be over very quickly and you can go home, he says, rotating an unlit cigarette in his right hand. If you confess your crimes and apologize, this will all be over. If you refuse, things will get much worse. An hour before, I had been at Pyongyang Airport preparing to board a flight to Beijing. Now I am facing hours, possibly days, of interrogation. My crime, according to my crinkle-faced interrogator, is insulting Marshal Kim Jong-un. The pit of my stomach turns cold. This is a serious offense. I'm not sure how I've done this, nor, it becomes clear, is my interrogator. It doesn't matter. My guilt has been decided elsewhere. Now he must get my confession. Okay, so that's quite a a scene or a podcast opener there. Uh, Before we get to that scene and learn more about it, uh, I want to just very briefly go back to 2003 when you made your first trip to North Korea, while at the time being BBC's Beijing correspondent. Uh, Was that first trip also a reporting trip? Well, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, Jacko. I mean, in the early 2000s, it was pretty difficult to get into North Korea during the, 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 the era of uh, Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il. Uh, the country was much more close to the international media. And it, the only way you could really get in, eat more easily, was as a tourist. And so there was a certain amount of subterfuge involved. We cooked up a scheme together with my producer, who were uh, a very... Uh, interesting young Australian woman who is now a famous correspondent elsewhere. We cooked up a scheme to go in as tourists on a Chinese tour group, which would have allowed us to actually cross the border by train from Ah. Dandong uh, and then take this very slow meandering journey through the the North Korean countryside uh, and arriving in Pyongyang about six or seven hours later. So it gives you a sort of different glimpse of the country. And then it's the normal tour that anybody would go on. and, and that's what we did for, I think, for four or five days. We, we were in Pyongyang. We were taken around by minders as usual to the normal places, but we were recording it and we did report on it when we left uh, at the end of the trip. And that did cause some problems, particularly it caused problems for uh, the person who had signed off on my visa mm. at the North Korean embassy in Beijing, who I found out through Nick Bonner, who is uh, an old career hand, North Korea hand, you probably know Nick. He's been on the podcast before, yes. Yeah, well, Nick contacted me and said, look, the guy who signed off on your visa is in trouble. Oh. Uh, and uh, can you write a letter basically fessing up to, to, to being, um, for, for, for being duplicitous? And, and, right. and I did that, and, uh, and it seems to have worked. Apparently, he did not lose his job. Uh, but yes, we had gone in 
like many journalists at the time did, um, using a certain degree of subterfuge. And, you know, what surprised me in that occasion is how upset the North Korean authorities were by the fact that we'd done that, um, because I, I thought they wouldn't be surprised uh, because so many journalists were doing it. Uh, now, then you went back in May of 2016 to North Korea, as uh, did many other journalists. Uh, what was the nature and purpose of that trip? Well, in, in May of 2016 was the seventh Workers' Party Congress was coming up. And it was a big uh, deal because I think it was the first Congress since 1980, so nearly yeah. 40 years. And the, the North Korean regime had invited about 150 odd journalists, international journalists to attend that. But a different BBC team was going to do that. And, and, and I had been invited by a completely different organization for a completely different trip. So oh. I was invited by the International Peace Foundation, uh, which is um, based in um, Vienna, I believe, and is run by the, the, the head of it is Prince Alfred of Liechtenstein. Mm. Uh, but he had, they had negotiated for two and a half years to take three Nobel laureates. Ah, this is the Nobel North laureates Korea. trip, right? This is the Nobel laureates trip, and there were these three Nobel laureates: one from Israel, one from Britain, uh, one from Norway, who were going to go in and give a lecture, a series of lectures to students at Kim Il Sung University and at the Pyongyang University of Science and Technology (PUST). Mm -hmm. And we were invited along to essentially to document and follow them during their trip and to tell the story of their trip. And, right. you know, at the outset, this seemed and, and they to were me, your sponsors, weren't they? The, they uh, were the sponsors of our visa. The they arranged everything. Peace That's Federation. right. The International Peace Foundation. Foundation, sorry. You know, for me, this, Jacko, this was, this was an opportunity to perhaps see something slightly different because as, as many of your guests, as, as Gene Lee and others have spoken recently about, you know, what most journalists get to see of North Korea is the same sites and the yeah. same places that they're dragged around and they don't actually get to ever meet any real North Koreans at all. The only right. people they ever speak to are their minders. Whereas we were gonna spend five or six days meeting with, yes, the elite, yes, a particular strata of North Korean society, but inside the halls of Kim Il-sung University and Pyongyang University of Science and Technology, and to see them interacting with these, these Nobel laureates. So it seemed like a really interesting thing to do. When you went in, were you uh, thinking you were going to meet uh, both academics and students? Yeah, I mean, we didn't know what we were going to see, to be honest. Um, right. And and, uh, and I think I had hoped we would be able to talk to some academics, but but just to meet, I, you know, I want to say ordinary North Koreans, because if you're at, if you're at Kim Il Sung University, you're not an ordinary uh, North Korean. You are a child of the elite. But mm -hmm. nevertheless, it's much more than than you normally get to interact with. And and we knew that some of them would be speaking English. Uh, we knew that there might be you know, a more room to, to, to talk to them about life and, and what they're able to do and, and just to get a sense of what it's like uh, inside right. these, okay, albeit very elite institutions. Um, you know, I think the thing that really surprised me once we got there is the scale of the charade and the theatre of what the academics, the three Nobel laureates were being shown that the lengths to which the authorities had gone to create what I can only describe as a really remarkably elaborate theater for these three academics to experience. I went back uh, yesterday on YouTube and watched one of your uh, reports that you filed in, in Pyongyang at the time. And I think you're talking about, for instance, um, visiting uh, a pediatric hospital, but there were no real doctors or real patients around. Is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? Well, the hospital was the first thing we went to, and it was a new children's hospital, and it was very impressive. It was brand new. It had lots of equipment, um, but it was very, very odd. Um, the patients didn't look sick. The people who were supposed to be the parents of these children didn't really look like their parents because the body language just looked all wrong for parents and children. And the doctors we were introduced to, um, yeah, I, maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, it was very, very confusing, but it, you know, at every stage of this trip, I mean, we went to a theme park on the second day, and I think it was the Lungra People's Pleasure Ground uh, on an island in, mm -hmm. in the, in the Taedong River. And, you know, we turned up there and we were told you can, you can mingle with the crowds, uh, go freely and mingle with the crowds. And I thought, well, amazing, amazing opportunity. There are thousands of people here uh, and we can just go and talk to them. And so we walked around the park and we found a remarkable number of these young people, and they were all young people. There were no families, there were no children. They were all people 18, 19, 20 sort of age. 
Uh, and they were having a great time. And it, suddenly we found that a remarkable number of them could speak English. And then every time I asked them, well, so what do you do? They said, oh, I'm a student at Kim Il-sung University. And it's like they had brought the whole of Kim Il-sung yeah. University to the theme park to be the people for us to go and interact with. And of course, then we knew, well, these people have all been briefed how to deal with us before they've been taken down here by bus. And so while this looks like a theme park, it's actually, this is, this is why I say this is a big show. This is theater. I then noticed a hot dog stand with a guy selling hot dogs. And I said, oh, interesting to see a bit of, you know, private enterprise going on. Can we go and interview this? Oh no, absolutely not. Then the attitudes completely changed. You can't really talk to this guy because he hasn't, you know, he's not your target. And this went on every day. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the really remarkable moment, I think, tell me if I'm going too long here, Jacko, and I'll, mm -hmm. I'll be briefer, but the really remarkable day was the day that the Nobel laureates gave their lectures and they were giving lectures on incredibly technical subjects in English mm -hmm. um, to an audience in a lecture theater in Kim Il-sung University. And they were, you know, the, the without interpreting, without interpreting. So this okay. was being done in English without interpreting. And it was a level of scientific discussion or, 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 or uh, lecturing uh, on subjects that were so complicated that I have to say that a lot of it I was lost by. Right. And yet when it got to the Q&A session, these the students stood up and asked questions in absolutely flawless English. And they were asking very, very detailed questions about the particular subjects. Gene editing was one of them. Yeah. About the gene editing technology that this particular Nobel laureate had developed. And the Nobel laureates were blown away. And I have to say, initially, I think we on the BBC team were all blown away as well by just, you know, the, 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 the level of English, the level yeah. of knowledge, until we started to sort of poke at it a bit. And then it became very quickly apparent that the people who had stood up at random in the audience, apparently, and asked these questions, there was no randomness to it at all. These had been chosen and coached probably for months beforehand. They had obviously chosen the smartest, best English-speaking students to do this. And the reason we found that out is because I just started walking around the auditorium afterwards and asking other students who hadn't asked questions asking them in English. And it was immediately apparent that most of them didn't speak English. Um, so they had been listening to a lecture in English that they didn't understand at all. We then had a meeting afterwards between the Nobel laureates and the group who had asked the, the, the kids who had asked the questions. Mm -hmm. And I started asking them questions. And I asked them, how do you, where did you get this knowledge from? What scientific journals do you subscribe to? How, how do you, you know, download papers that you can get this sort of knowledge? And Sadly, you know, I mean, I felt for these kids because they were being watched by our minders, but they were like deer caught in headlights. They didn't know what the New England Journal of Medicine was. They didn't know what Google was. Um, they were they were confused by all the questions that I asked them. And I and, and so, you know, very rapidly, we were poking all sorts of holes in the in in the facade that had been carefully built probably over many, many months. And because of this we were causing lots and lots of problems for mm. the delegation and for ourselves. And, you know, everything went downhill very, very rapidly. And our minders became more and more furious with us. How were the, uh, the Nobel laureates reacting to, you know, to what you were telling them that you'd been finding out? So Sir Richard Roberts, who's the, who's the biologist, who's a British biologist, um, initially he seemed to be also concerned and um you know actually i thought he was he was he was as curious and in, as as we were about the situation there and um i certainly felt no hostility from him but there were others on the team and particularly prince alfred of Liechtenstein, who were becoming increasingly concerned and understandably so look i'm not you know i'm not making any accusations against them they were there for their purpose which was an academic exchange and a trying to build bridges between institutions in, in, in North Korea and elsewhere. And we were sabotaging it. And they got increasingly angry. And, and by the end of the trip, in fact, uh, you know, they were very, very upset with us and uh, actually said that we had put their uh, security and safety in Pyongyang in danger. And um, 
Prince Alfred in particular was extremely angry and has and, and, and even threatened at one point to take said he would take legal action against the BBC for my behavior. Wow. Uh, do you think there's anything to the suggestion that you brought them into uh, into danger? I don't think so. I mean, I think the North Korean minders were getting orders from. I mean, you know, look, I think what was happening, to be honest, Jacko, is that our broadcasts were going out every night on yeah. the BBC in the UK and the, 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 the DPRK embassy in London was watching them and then sending feedback. This is probably what happened and saying, yeah. hey, look, you know, this this BBC team is is sabotaging any propaganda uh, value from this trip. Um, get a you know you need to get control of them and so our minders would then come and at breakfast the next morning and threaten us and say you've got to you've got to stop what you're doing um, otherwise you will be in big trouble and these threats grew during the week so I think they knew you know who the who the problematic parties were here but behind the scenes it's very possible that they were going to the uh, Peace Foundation delegation and saying mm. you know this is going to you know you're all going to be kicked out if, if this carries on they, i mean it's very possible that they could have been threatened as well um this wasn't working it wasn't working as the north korean authorities had hoped it would work right now up until the point of your actual detention there at the airport in pyongyang what were you thinking what did you have a a sense of foreboding that the threats might come to something Oh, very much so. I mean, by the final day. So we'd arrived, I think, on a Sunday. And by the Thursday, when we were at Pyongyang University of Science and Technology, we were flatly told by our minders that we could no longer film, no longer do any interviews, and that we were being sent back to our hotel. Mm. Uh, and that we would have to stay there until we departed the following day on Friday. And um, so we thought, I mean, I said to the team at the time, um, I think we could, you know, we could very well be expelled tomorrow. Um, we have obviously upset some important people and um, uh, I was expecting them to just say, put us on a plane and say, you can't come back. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, when we got to the, the, the um, airport on the Friday at the end of our trip, I had a certain amount of foreboding that mm. I was just looking forward to getting on the plane actually. And, uh, and I had a certain amount of foreboding that, all was not well we'd, we'd we'd arrived there before the rest of the delegation and yet our check-in took much much longer than everybody else was checked in and through immigration while we were still checking in and then when i went through immigration they pulled out a recorder a little digital recorder from my bag and were looking at it and looking at my passport meantime my producer and uh, our cameraman went through and went into the departures hall and I was being held back. And then, and then that was the moment. And I did think, Oh, if they're going to take me, this is the moment they're going to do it. And indeed they did. They said, there's a problem with your recorder. We need you to download something off this card. Can you come into this room? I went to this room, the door was shut. There were policemen there, secret policemen there. And that's really the moment which I you know, disappeared down this rabbit hole. When you say secret policemen, do you mean they were not wearing a uniform or insignia of any sort? Actually, initially they were airport um, police, yeah. uh, I think police, uh, in green uniforms. And then they had basically just been hold, told to hold, hold me. And, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't right. know why they were holding me. And they were making all sorts of strange excuses about this recording device. And I said, this is... And they held me and held me and held me until the time passed when the plane for Beijing should have taken off. And yeah. so I thought, oh, this is real. This is now real. Then my plane has left. Right. And then plain clothed guys from Pyongyang turned up and took over. Uh-huh. And where and did they then, take you to? So then they took me to a car. And, you know, at this point, I, as you, the reading you, you, you did earlier, yeah. at this point, really, you start to feel very stunned and discombobulated mm. and confused. And you think, is this really happening? They pushed me into an SUV uh, with two guys sitting on either side of me and drove me back into Pyongyang on a different road, not on the highway that you normally go in on, uh, through pretty drab suburbs and uh, along the old railway line into Pyongyang and ah. through past railway line yards and then to a very drab grey hotel, which it turns out is the base from, from which they operate. And I was taken into a conference room there uh -huh. told to sit down and that's when the interrogation began okay so this was not you were not taken back to the hotel where you had been staying no no this was this was not a hotel where i think any foreigners stay um uh -huh. this is i mean it was a 
it outwardly it looked like a a, a hotel although yeah. rather a gray and as i say rather drab one but um inside it was apparent that this was the sort of one of the operating centers where the right. uh, the internal security operate from okay and it, it, that's where you were held for the next eight hours or so so that, i got there i suppose i got there about six in the evening and the interrogation began with one team and then later on at about eight it switched to another team one of the interrogators of whom said he had interrogated another kenneth very bay. kenneth bay that's right he yeah. interrogated kenneth bay and he was really rather frightening and then later on in the evening a younger much more cosmopolitan looking policeman secret policeman turned up who spoke fluent english and then they did the whole good cop bad cop routine mm. and this all went on past yeah went on until about 3 a.m mm. and you know it it was it was in turns threats and um offers uh, i mean a sort of classic very very well done i mean i have to say you know they were very good at what they did mm -hmm. um they initially tried to scare me and get it get it done quickly then when they realized i wasn't going to play with that um they then went to a good cop bad cop rating routine in which the the bad cop the threats got more and more and more interestingly though at the same time you know they didn't really know what like i said in the written piece they mm -hmm. it was clear they didn't really know what i was being accused of and so there was actually one of my minders that has accompanied us during the, the week turned up and yeah. he was told to look through all the printouts of the articles and stuff that I'd written and find things to use against me. And they had a huge Webster's dictionary on the desk in front of them and they were underlining words and then going to the Webster's dictionary and looking stuff up. And I had read stupidly. I mean, when I look back on this, I think, you know, what was I thinking? But yeah. I had written a Pyongyang diary. I'd written a daily diary for our website yeah. in which I'd sort of talked about things we'd done that day. And some of the things I'd written on there were very unwise. So, you know, I, I described um, the uh, Juche Memorial as being uh, a, a, an enormous phallic col column on the south oh. side of the Daedong River. Right. And when they underlined the word phallic, phallic and looked it up in the in the Webster's dictionary, this is it, in, within your line of sight, so you're able to see right, this right across the table from me. Yeah, um, you could see the face of our minder, someone you know who I'd spent the previous week with and got along with fairly well. You could see his face go bright red, Gee. and I mean he was extremely angry. And then there was a conversation in Korean, and then that was you know that was a a bit of evidence to 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 then use against me yeah uh and also to build this sort of this whole picture that i had insulted the korean leadership and the korean people did and, you also describe the leader kim jong-un as corpulent and unpredictable uh corpulent i think was it, yes it might have been corpulent or or it certainly it's a word that described it as being overweight Right. Um, that, that was in the the, uh, the audio part or in your diary part? No, it was in the diary entry, I think. And again, you know, this is these things were this was just an unwise thing to do when you're in the country. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't I don't think I called him unpredictable. Um, I, I may be wrong. I'd have to look back. But I certainly described him as being overweight. Um, and again, that was taken as, you know, obviously, obviously, you know, you've been to North Korea insulting yeah. the leadership's physicality is, is, is a is a very serious crime. Um, so, you know, then, you know, then they were threatened, they were going to put me on trial. And they said, you know, Kenneth Bay um, and others, they mentioned others who had who had been sentenced to, to hard labor. And, and they said, essentially, you're going to you're going to face the same fate. Did they mention Otto Warmbier? Because this was shortly after he'd been given the 15 year sentence in prison, wasn't it? My recollection is they did not mention him directly, um, although, you know, he was absolutely he it had happened very recently and yeah. you know everybody was talking about that you know amongst the international media coming to pyongyang everybody right. was talking about that so it's very much in the air but uh, obviously we had no idea of what had happened to him but they know they specifically mentioned kenneth bay yeah. and and some others but but not not him and can you go into any detail about what things they were threatening you with? You said the threats were getting worse and worse. I mean, did they say, you know, did they say anything about violence, like we'll break your arms or we'll pummel your head or anything like that? No, actually, they were incredibly careful. I mean, I, you know, at no point was any physical force used against me. 
I, I wasn't handcuffed. I was treated very civilly. I was allowed to go to the toilet. Um, I was given something to eat. I was given water. So mm. I was never mistreated. But um, at one point, one of the investigators said, so you, you know, these, these, do you, do you, do you realize, do you realize how much anger this would cause ordinary North Koreans if they knew what you had said about our dear leader? We could take you out on the street now mm. and read out in front of these people mm. what you have said about our leader and imagine what would happen to you if you did that. I and mean, I didn't think they were going to do that. I did think that this was part of a negotiation and they wanted a confession. I, I did think that you know, ultimately that was their end goal, was to get a video recorded confession from me that they could put on their media and released yeah. to the international media. Um, and I thought, you know, that's the end game and I'm going to sit here and not do it because I know that I have other colleagues in Pyongyang and I know they will be looking for me. And I know that, you know, given enough time, the, the alarm bells will be called. And I, I just have to tough it out until something happens that, 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 that leads to a negotiation. And actually I kept repeating over and over, look, you need to negotiate with the BBC. I am a guest of the North Korean government. I'm an employee of the BBC. If you have a problem with what the BBC's broadcast, you have to negotiate with the BBC. This is not about me as an individual. They wanted to make it about me as an individual, obviously, uh, understandably. I wanted to make it about an organization. I wanted to put it back on that level. And, and that's why it went on through the night. Okay, so you, you were, uh, so normally, where, whereas you might be you know, terrified or worried about what might happen to you, you were uh, buoyed perhaps by the, the sense that there's 130 other journalists not far away in Pyongyang. They'll eventually work out that something's happening to me and, and, and that will prevent them from, you know, going too far. Well, I wouldn't say I wasn't afraid. Okay. It was a very scary experience and it was a very dazing experience. There's a photograph that they released uh, that's made it onto the, I think, onto CNN first. And then is, you can find it on our website. I saw that one yesterday. Yeah. Who took yeah, that? Um, uh, the, one of the one of the that's in the interrogation room. That, uh, that's right at the beginning, and you can see how how dazed I look. And I was, you know, I was scared. I would, you know, it, North Korea's regime is a very serious regime, and yeah. people have been sentenced to long prison terms. Usually, there is a negotiation, but look, I, the truth is, Jacko, if it wasn't for the fact that the Seventh Party Congress was about to happen, and there are 130 journalists down the road, including my boss from the Beijing bureau and his team, I would have been a lot, lot more worried about how long this was going to go on for. Could have been weeks, could yeah. be months. Uh, and, you know, psychologically, I was thinking this could be weeks. Um, but, but hopefully the other team at the Yangakdo Hotel will, will find out what's happened to me and they will start raising hell, which is exactly what happened. Uh, my boss at the time from Beijing uh, found out that I hadn't that, arrived. Uh, John Sudworth. John Sudworth was there, and our editor, our Asia editor, ah. Joe Floto, ah. uh, at the time, he was there, and he went to their foreign ministry minder, and he started saying, you know, this is going to be, and using what leverage he had, I think, which was to say, this is going to overshadow your Congress. Right. You know this, right? This will over if you if you hold one of our, journal our journalists, it will overshadow the Congress. You don't want this. You need to help me find out where he is and um, help to get him released. And, you know, the foreign ministry minder, I don't know his name um, and I probably wouldn't want to tell it even if, if I did. He did help to locate where I was. And then a negotiation got underway uh, in a different room. And so who negotiated with whom? So my boss from Beijing, Joe, huh. negotiated with, uh, you know, I was sitting in the room, unknowns to me. This started about 2 or 3 a.m. Yeah. He arrived around 3 a.m. And there was a discussion and some of the, the, the interrogators disappeared and went off. And uh, I sat there with, with the, the others waiting, unbeknownst to me. Uh, and now a, a second negotiation had begun in a different room. Uh, where um, my boss had come from the the, the uh, Yangakdo Hotel and was yeah. sitting down and, and and negotiating how I could what what could be done to get this to to stop to to finish this right and with, as far as you know was he was he negotiating with the security people or with the foreign ministry people 
Oh no, it was with the security people. Right. It was okay. not the. I mean, the foreign ministry have no 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 involvement in this, and actually no power over these yeah. people. Well, that well, was very clear. Yeah. Very clear. But they were and able you know, to find out where you were and to get you in touch with the security people. They were able to find out where I was and to bring my colleague to that place, and then right. essentially he was on his own in doing yeah. those negotiations, and and you know. It got to a point where Joe then came into the room where I was, mm. much to my relief. This was about 4 a.m., I think, by then. And he came in and said... This is the first we, you knew that he was even there, right? First, first I knew he was there as so he walked mm. into the room and he said, are you OK? And I said, yeah, I'm OK. And he said, OK, we need to sit down and both of us need to write a letter mm -hmm. to basically, you know, the, we have negotiated the outline of what this letter will be and you need to write this and I need to write that and then no. we will hand this letter over to them and then you will be allowed to leave. So it was one letter, but both of you wrote different parts. So no, it is two, two different letters, two, one okay. from him representing no. the BBC and one from me representing myself, right. uh, you know, basically saying, acknowledging what I had done, what I was accused of doing. And it was one of those apologies that's not really an apology, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. I mean, I acknowledged what they were accusing me of and I apologised for the offence that I caused. They then at the last minute wanted me to stand up and videotape my statement and we said no we wouldn't do that and, much, and then conversation carried on and eventually I was then Joe left and I was left with them and they took me to a guest house oh uh, and again was it far uh, away did you have to get in a car yes yeah. they took me in, in in a car to a guest house and it's not one I think it's one that is sometimes used by I think it's used mainly by Chinese tourists it ah. was completely empty and unbeknownst to me Jacko just to sort of digress a little my two colleagues who I thought had gone on the plane to Beijing yeah and left me behind had not they had kicked and screamed and clung on to pieces of furniture and said they would not get on the plane without me and so they had been put on ice that night in this guest house and I was reunited with them ah. there so the three of us sort of were held up by ourselves in this in this guest state guest house. But this is somewhere that, like very late in the night. I mean, we're talking after four, probably just before yeah, this dawn is or like, something. Yeah, this is just before dawn. Uh, uh, and there was a guard downstairs, you know, the police downstairs. And we were clearly not with any of the international media down at the Yangakdo Hotel. Yeah. And we were there until, so we were there through Saturday, Saturday night, and then into Sunday. And I don't know for sure, but my assumption is that a high level discussion was going on in the government or in the security services about what to do with us. Were they going to let us leave? Were they going to expel us? Or were they going to take further action against us? And on Sunday morning, we were told we could move to the Yangakdo Hotel. And that to me was a sign that, okay, we're going to be allowed to leave the country but under what conditions, we don't know. So then we moved to the Yangakdo Hotel yeah. and stayed the night there. And then, and then Monday, you were reunited with the other we hundred were reunited or so. With, exactly. We were reunited for every, with everybody else, with John Sudworth. We yeah. had a beer together. Tremendous relief. Yeah. Um, good beer at the Yangakdo Hotel. Good beer. Little plug <laughs> yes. to their, for their bar there. Yeah. <laughs> it was very good, yes. Yeah. Yes, I believe set up by a British brewery in, uh, in, in Pyongyang that, that, that makes that beer. Then Monday morning came around and Wait, we hold were, on. you were supposed to leave on Friday afternoon, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And now we've got to Monday morning. Yeah. And we were waiting to find out what would happen. We'd been hinted that we would be put on a plane that day. But then they called it. They suddenly called a press conference at the Yangakdo Hotel and called CNN in and Reuters and others. And I was sitting downstairs in the foyer having a cup of coffee. and. Yeah. My boss, Joe, came over to me and he said, you need to go now. You need to, there's a bus outside. You need to get on the bus now. You've got to get you to the airport. You are being expelled. And so we raced to the bus, got, on, got our bags on board and started to go, drive off towards the airport, at which point several other journalists started running out of the hotel because they found out that I was being expelled. And meantime, upstairs on the second floor, a government spokesman was holding a press conference announcing that, you know, you've probably seen a clip of it. Um, I where he's announcing night, yes. that, that I was being expelled and that I would never be allowed back into the DPRK uh, again. Yeah. Um, 
it's interesting because a lot of the journalists had thought that they were about to announce the release of Otto Warmbier. Right. And, and I think we're rather disappointed that, uh, that, you know, all they got to hear about was that some pesky BBC journalist was being yes. kicked out. Um, so we raced to the airport and we were, you know, here's another unique North Korea moment. I got to passport control where I'd been held, the exact moment I'd been held uh, right. on the Friday, three days before. Did you recognize and the same customs people? I, I, I didn't. Mm -hmm. I didn't. It, but I did. I did feel extremely nervous. It yeah. was a it was a, a nerve wracking moment being at the same spot. Um, although my colleagues were with me, you know, and actually someone from the British embassy had come to observe my departure. Wow. Uh, which I was very grateful for. And at the passport control, they said, you've overstayed your visa. Wow. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to have to fine you for overstaying your visa. And I said, but it's because you detained me that I yeah. overstayed my visa. Anyway, I wasn't going to have a fight about it. So I think I was, I was, we were all fined around 600 euros for overstaying our visas by yeah. three days. Um, and then we were put on a plane to Beijing. And um, I was, you know, obviously very relieved. Yeah. And uh, I was not aware of just what sort of reception we were about to arrive into in Beijing, which was extraordinary. I mean, you know, I'm used to being the person waiting for someone to come out of a door and, yeah. and doorstep them. And suddenly for the first time in my life, I wasn't the other end of it. And it's <laughs> very, very strange <laughs> because there were 500 reporters waiting at Beijing airport with cameras, Japanese, Korean, American, Chinese, all just, jumping over each other trying to block my way out of the uh, the airport trying to block my way of getting into my car right. Beijing bureau driver mr lee was there waiting for us wonderful mr lee and you know got into the car and it was it was a circus very very strange to be on the other to be the story yes now you've since uh, talked to some some experts who uh including here in south korea who told you how lucky you were that you were able to get out as quickly as you did uh, what what did they think could have happened to you? Yeah, I went and did it. I then went and did actually did a documentary about what you know about based around it for a BBC Panorama program, um, and went and talked to a lot of defectors in South Korea and some very senior defectors, um, people who had worked at the top for uh, Kim Jong Il, um, and they were very much of the opinion that the the decision to let me go would have come from right from the top, mm. uh, and that probably it was due to the fact that they didn't want the Congress overshadowed and that I was lucky. I was lucky because yeah. what I had done was in the eyes of the North Korean regime, very serious, and they would have wanted to make an example of me. Um, and so, you know, based on that, I mean, I had, I have no way to know whether that's true or not, but based on what they told me, um, it could have been a lot worse. In retrospect now, uh, almost five years later, uh, how do you look back on that incident and your part in it? You know, it's, I've thought about it an awful lot since then. And, you know, I think there's no doubt that the reporting that we did, particularly at Kim Il-sung University, was, and the way that we went about it, sort of poking big holes in the facade and, uh, and basically telling our audience that this is all a huge charade, um, was bound to cause trouble and was the wisdom of it. I still sort of, I still, think a lot about was this the wisest way to go about it because inevitably you are heading for a collision mm. both with the authorities and with the people who you were traveling with but on the other hand as a reporter i don't know how else i could have told the story because it was what what should i do not pretend not to see what we were obviously seeing that this was a charade not tell our audience that i think in retrospect look if i was going to do that again if I could rewind the clock and go back, I think I would have said to our editors in London, look, you're going to have to wait until this trip is over to see yeah. what we produce. And we'll wait until we get back to Beijing and then we will produce a series of stories for you. But, but doing it in the country is just too provocative and, uh, and, 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 and was an unwise thing to do. Yeah, that, that certainly, it seems to me that that would have been a safer way of doing it, to uh, have simply taken the raw footage and audio while in the country and then prepared the final stories afterwards. That's certainly what, I mean, the, the defectors and other journalists who, you know, you talk to, I, I know a number of journalists who are blacklisted uh, from North Korea. 
Uh, and being blacklisted is very different from my experience. You know, I'm now blacklisted as well, but they wrote their stories or, or told their stories once outside. And, and there's, this sort of, there's this sort of game, which is, look, once you're out of the country, you can say what you want. You might not be allowed back in again, but you know, there's not going to be retri direct retribution against you. But say it in the court of the dear leader, mm -hmm. really. You know, Pyongyang is his territory. You are courting real trouble for yourself and it's a it's it's you know i listened to you talking to jean lee and her experience of of reporting in pyongyang and i thought it was very very interesting and i'm very much of the same opinion of her which is that to really report a country you need to speak the language and you need to, to spend a lot of time in the place mm. um because you know you just pick up so much more by doing that um but i think I don't know. I wonder how foreign, you know, the, the question I think raised by what happened to me is, can any of us visiting North Korea ever really do normal reporting in the way that we do elsewhere? And I think, unfortunately, the, the answer is, is no, you really can't. Because if you try to, you end up having the sort of experience, you know, I was trying to report North Korea as I had reported China for 10 years. And in China, my experience had been Yes, you get into trouble. Yes, the authorities will try and stop you from getting to places, from speaking to people. But there is a respect for what we do. And, you know, they, they won't, they will complain, but they won't. There is an understanding of the game. Although in the last what year or two, we've seen that that, that, that has its limits too, right? I mean, the, I think the Australian journalists who, were, uh, who had Absolutely. the knock on their doors at midnight and who yeah, left yeah. the next day. Look, things have got a lot worse in China in the last few years. And it's a very, very different environment from the one that I worked in in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, but I had, you know, I have worked in China, I've worked in Russia for four years, I've worked with in places which have regimes that don't like journal, foreign journalists. So I had thought, you know, naively perhaps, I had thought that because of the Congress coming up, because mm -hmm. I was going with a group of international VIPs, I would be protected by that bubble and I would be able to report things that, yes, would cause anger from the regime, but they would, I, I would be protected and immunized, if you like, against retribution by the circumstances I was, I, I was traveling in with these very important VIPs and with the Congress coming up. As it turned out, I was wrong. The North Korean regime is, very, is just very different and it is very intolerant of any criticism on its own territory. You've heard um, my recent interviews, not just with Gene Lee, but also with uh, Mike Chinoy and um, uh, Will Ripley, Will Ripley, who, who yeah. recorded also uh, reported also from within the DPRK on the DPRK. What what advice would you give to somebody who says, you know, I'm thinking of, of course, it won't be this year because of COVID, but whenever North Korea does open up again, when someone says, Rupert, I'm going to go in and do a report from Pyongyang, what advice would you give them? As Mike and, and Will and, and Jean have all said, I mean, you know, going to see the country is, 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 it's always, I mean, it's a fascinating place. And most of the people you meet are delightful. I mean, my mind is on my first trip in 2003, I still think about them today. They were absolutely lovely people. We had a great time with them. It's worth, it's always worth going to see and to see with your own eyes. There is nothing that replaces seeing a place with your own eyes. But I think, I think very much as Jean said to you, you have to understand that this is a very different place and that, that you're potentially, through your behavior, putting those who are looking after you, your minders, and certainly anybody you speak to in, in difficulties, if not in danger, depending on how you report what you've seen and what you've experienced, you are not really seeing the real North Korea. You, you are just not. None of us are seeing the real North Korea. We're seeing a very sanitized version of North Korea. And to an extent, we are doing the North Korean regime's propaganda work for them. That's why they want us there. That's why they invited the international media in to do, to witness the big military parades, to witness the, uh, the Yunha, is it? The Yunha rocket launches, the, uh, the oh, satellite yeah. launches mm -hmm. back in, I'm talking about six, seven years ago now, I think, um, when the international media were allowed in quite large numbers to do that. Uh, and that's why, you know, with all the best, best will, you know, I have no, 
no no gripe with the with the work that CNN does in 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 North Korea. But I you know I think if you've had 19 visas to North Korea, there's a reason why you keep getting them. It's because North Korea likes what you're doing, mm. and I think you know we all have to bear that in mind that you know we are to an extent to an extent um, there because the the regime wants us to be there to tell their story. I wonder what the uh... Uh, what what it's like for the Russian and Chinese and Cuban journalists who are allowed to actually live in in North Korea and report from inside? I wonder if they get a, a closer to uh, an accurate picture of, of what North Korea is like. Well, that's I mean, I thought Gene had the, probably the best take on that of anybody I've I've uh, I've heard on the podcast because she actually did get to mix with those uh, with those people. Um, I, you know, I don't know is the answer, Jacko. I mean, the, the Chinese journalists I knew in Pyongyang who had traveled to North Korea honestly thought it was as strange as we did huh. um, and found it as frustrating and uh, difficult to, uh, as we did. Uh, Chinese journalists and, and tourists get a great deal more, uh, I think, leeway. Um, but, you know, not, it's, not, it's not like they, they get free reign to go yeah. around the country they i mean it's, there's still the same places the same sites there's still great reluctance to let anybody you to speak to anybody who who hasn't sort of been briefed a, ahead of time but also i just think you know from from interviewing recent defectors in south korea it's very clear that most north korean people are well aware of how they should behave in front of foreigners and they know where the lines are and they know what not to say and what not to cross for their own safety and so uh, i think even for the diplomats and aid workers who've been there long term it's that you're still getting a very very uh, a short a much more detailed but still a very partial picture of the country now when i interviewed uh, jean lee recently on the podcast she uh, actually mentioned your case and said something that uh, prompted you to reach out to me and that's why we're doing this uh, interview today what was it that she said that uh, that stuck in your mind that made you reach out well, no, I, I thought it was a very good interview and I like Jean very much. Um, and I, I, I did think there, there was a sort of suggestion, maybe a little suggestion that, that, that I, I, like some other journalists, may have gone in there not really understanding the situation and uh, not understanding how difficult and dangerous North Korea potentially is. And that's how maybe how I, I got into trouble. And so, you know, I thought I'd be a good chance to sort of not to set the record straight, but to sort of give a more detailed right. explanation of what, what had happened, um, because I think as, as I have sort of acknowledged in what I said to you today, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I didn't know where that line is, but I'm not sure any of us really know where that line is. Um, I, was, I was surprised by how sensitive the regime is, um, and I was surprised by how grand the charade is that is prepared for foreign dignitaries and VIPs that, that I'd accompanied. Um, so there were things that I was surprised by, but I certainly didn't feel like I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I'd been there before. I'd reported on the six party talks. Um, and, you know, maybe Gene's right. Maybe, you know, we, we just do need to know, think, think understand just how different a place it is and and about what the implications are of 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 going there on the people that we interact with uh it's a difficult one i mean i think it's a really difficult question to answer because as i've said you know i'm not sure how much it is uh furthering international understanding of korea i mean mm. a lot of the reporting is very is very cliched. We all, all engage in this sort of, isn't it a strange place, aren't they? You know, isn't it a weird cult? Right. We're, um, we're woken at 6am by the eerie music floating across the plaza, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's really unfortunate because, I mean, you know, the interactions you do have mainly with your minders uh, and the the, the, the the officials and doctors and scientists or whoever you get to meet is is that North Korean people are just like the rest of us. Um, there isn't, you know, they're not weird and, and members of a cult. They're doing their best to survive in a very difficult situation. And most of the people I met were treated me with great respect and kindness. And, you know, and, and I like, you know, I couldn't help but, but, but like the people that I met. That doesn't mean that I found the regime particularly appetizing that they, that they work for, but I didn't feel any anger or hostility towards them and, and I didn't feel any from them towards me actually uh, until we started 
provoking the regime. Right. Rupert, if you were to get a letter a year or two from now that said, you know, all is forgiven, come back, uh, we, we'll give you another visa, come and do another story. Would you like to go into North Korea again on another reporting assignment? Oh, I mean, it's just, it's, it is an endlessly fascinating place. I mean, this is why you do what you do. It's yeah. why Chad and the team do what they do. Um, it would be very difficult not to resist the pull of being invited back. Um, I think I would prepare myself more. I would think much harder about how I was going to go about doing the story that I was going to do and maybe would, you know, make the choice to go and gather material and wait until I got out of North Korea to, to, to put the reports together. That just seems like a much more sensible way to do it. I, you know, which is not to say I wouldn't have qualms about stepping back into North Korea, having experienced what I, what, what I did, even if it was very briefly. I mean, there's plenty of people who've been held for much longer than me. Well, that's uh, right. There are some South Korean citizens right now in North Korea that unfortunately nobody's talking about who have been uh, in prison for, you know, some of them uh, seven years and upwards. Yeah, yeah. And there are abductees from Japan and South Korea whose, yeah, whose whereabouts and, and history are just, are just not known. Yep. Far more from South Korea, actually, than from here in Japan. But I mean, it is an open sore here yep. in Japan that that the, the what happened to people who were abducted, you know, 30, 40 years ago is still unknown. Well, as you know, of course, North Korea right now is under a self-imposed uh, quarantine, effectively, because of the COVID pandemic. It's unclear when they'll open again. Uh, probably, as I said, not this year. Uh, let's see how things go and, and when the next foreign journalist will be allowed back in. It, it could be quite a while. It could be quite a while, and, and I'm very much not expecting to get that letter. <laughs> uh, well, we, we hope we do one day. Uh, thank you once again, Rupert Wingfield-Hayes, for coming on the NK News podcast. Not at all. It's been a pleasure, Jacko, and keep up the good work. Don't forget, listeners, you can find Rupert on Twitter at WingCommander1. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. And if you have feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, or a story that you'd like to tell, please send it to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast, and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks, and listen again next time. <laughs>